Shut up and sit down. Monologues are kind of like guitar solos. They're theoretically quite self-indulgent, unless they're really, really fucking good. Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert, and I'm sitting here today over Zoom with fellow podcast host Al Horner. Hey, Carl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience a bit and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm a journalist and a screenwriter based in the UK, and I'm the host of Script Apart, which is a screenwriting podcast. Each episode, we, man, I almost, I just immediately fall into like the episode intro voice. Um, each episode, <laughs> we, uh, we have a, a, like a famous screenwriter on and they revisit their first draft of a beloved movie. Uh, yeah, so we've had everyone from Aaron Sorkin to Barry Jenkins on. And uh, yeah, it's it's a blast to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. Of course. No, it's I'm I was really excited when you uh, responded to my DM on Instagram because uh, I'm a big fan of the show. So definitely recommend everyone checks it out. Uh, one of the best screenwriting podcasts out there easily and was a big inspiration for this show. Definitely. Um, and I was likewise very excited when you mentioned you wanted to talk about this week's show, Midnight Mass. Yeah, well, when I saw you'd done, um, you'd done Mike Flanagan last week, it's like, you asked me, you asked me uh, what I'd like to come on and talk about. And there are a lot of scripts that like, I love that have been really, really formative for me. There were a lot of movies that came to mind straight away. But I had just finished Midnight Mass. And a combination of like it being so fresh in my mind and having moved me on such a level and the fact that like script part so far has not done TV. So um, this isn't something I'd be able to have on the show anytime soon and wouldn't be able to kind of like geekly express my love for on like a story <laughs> level at great length. It meant that, yeah, that was like one of my first kind of um, first thoughts. And, and luckily you, you were up for it. You were up for carrying on the Flanagan love Oh, Mike Flanagan is the man again, as I say. Um, no, I loved Midnight Mass. I love everything Mike Flanagan's done, like all the way back to Absentia. And it's always a pleasure to get to talk to, about his work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Hill House was like my introduction to him. And after that, I kind of went back and checked out everything else like Oculus. And with the exception of Bly Manor, which I think I need to revisit. Yeah, I mean, that that show came out at like, a point of like pandemic depression and fatigue that I think may have affected my viewing a bit because that's the one that didn't click for me on like mm -hmm. the immense emotional level and kind of straightforward horror level that everything else that he's done has. Yeah, I have like a really, really, really strong kind of attachment to his work with the exception of Bly, which I think I think my sense of disconnect to that project was probably more down to me than um, and the moment than the actual show itself. In the middle of the pandemic, it was so hard to like, some of the darker works really were difficult to connect to for me too. It was, it definitely affected how I interacted with movies, TV shows, books, anything. So a hundred percent hear you on that. Yeah. But that said, this is a really interesting follow-up to Bly in that it does a lot of things differently and it overturns like I, I, I was having the, I was on this long drive yesterday and I was trying to figure out like why it was that like I fell so instantaneously and so hard for, for Midnight Mass and I think one of the things uh, the conclusion I came to was that um, 
it kind of like turns on its head a, a really dominant horror trope from the last decade or so that he himself has kind of often veered towards. So like Midnight Mass has a really tangible monster, a really tangible threat, like the horrific element of it is real and kind of indisputable in a way that I think since the Babadook, that kind of time, um, like horror has been kind of dominated by these apparitions that are like manifestations of internal issues and, and pieces of characters past. And these monsters are then maybe they're real, maybe they're not. They're there to haunt them and they're parts of their personal life that are horrific kind of in monster form. Midnight Mass has just like a very definite monster and a very definite threat. And um, it was really refreshing to see him kind of veer away from that trope that I feel like I've seen a lot of. And that was part of Bly Manor and was actually also part of Hill House to a degree. And, and just do something something different that felt so, as I say, tangible. So yeah, that was that was one of the things I love about it. I'm trying to kind of like uh, we discussed off air, kind of keeping this spoiler free for the first little bit. So <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah. I know. You, I I think going off that, that I I mean, Midnight Mass definitely felt very different from certainly his other Netflix shows. But I frankly think anything he's ever made, uh, it was very refreshing in that way. It showed it had the classic. Uh, you know, very humanistic horror that Mike Flanagan has really leaned into is sort of his personal brand. And it certainly had kind of the puzzle box narrative that he's also big into. But it was, like you said, much more visceral is not the right word, but like concrete in a way. And it's horror and also much more uh, just the, the, the atmosphere of it was very different. It was gothic, but not gothic in the way Hill House and Bly Manor were you know it, it felt very Stephen King even it, it, I guess that's the work that it most reminds me of is his Dr. Sleep adaptation which I loved. Stephen King's like a really interesting one uh, to mention because this really reminded me of The Mist but in, in the way that The Mist and Frank Darabont's adaptation of The Mist is kind of like the question that The Mist leaves you with is whether the horrific element in in that film was and in that uh, story was it the mist itself was it the sort of like external supernatural threat or was it the people itself was it the the people who were trapped inside that uh, supermarket midnight mass kind of like takes the mists uh conversation about religion and just dials up the nuance and touches on a lot of the same beats in terms of like communal power communal panic and how like religion and faith kind of intersects with those things when there's this like mysterious new threat on the horizon. But it, I think it does it in a much more sophisticated way, obviously a much more novelistic way because like it's got seven episodes to spread that discussion out across. Yeah, man, I, I really want to go back and watch The Mist now because um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in common and the character of Bev in Midnight Masks really reminded me of like the main antagonist in, in The Mist. So um, yeah, interesting to think about this in terms of Stephen King, because that was definitely an influence. You know, I, I have to say, I think we're limiting ourselves. So I'm just going to go ahead and say, you know, this is where we're going to break out into full blown spoilers, because it's so hard to talk about what this show is doing, like what the show does so yeah. well without like touching upon the very big spoilers, which Another Stephen King thing. This is, I feel like, the best adaptation of Salem's Lot ever made. <laughs> that it's it's obviously not literally Salem's Lot, but it's this is a vampire story, which 
I was so happy to not know that going in. I don't know if they'd advertised it that way at all, but like episode three, when it became clear, I like, I remember watching distinctly that episode one and two, you know, there, there's allusions to blood and, you know, drinking the blood of Jesus Christ, the Eucharist and all that. And wondering, okay, so clearly the, you know, uh, father Paul was the, you know, coming back, the younger version of himself, Hamish Linklater's character was not actually a different priest, but was the same old demented priest, you know, that, that I caught on to very quickly, but I was like, so is this, what is this? What's going on? Is this demons? And then by episode three, when like you have the big reveal, I, I thought, I mean, first of all, what a great way to introduce the vampire threat. And with a slightly different twist that it's, you know, not up in a big Romanian castle, but like in the middle of the desert, I thought was really interesting just visually to help differentiate this from other vampire stories, but also the way in which, yeah, I mean, it plays off your expectation, but in a way that makes perfect sense for what the story was about up until that point. Yeah, I thought, uh, well, there were two things. I think the patience in its like reluctance to immediately reveal itself as a vampire story was really admirable. Like when you when you know like you're watching a vampire story, there, as you say, are a number of expectations that come with that because you know the genre, you know the tropes. But this, it wasn't marketed at all to the best of my understanding as, as a vampire story. I definitely didn't know that going in. But I think the thing I loved most about it, and I mean, I, I, I talked at the beginning about like how tangible this monster is. The vampire is a vampire, but it's also an angel. And right. I think that's very much reflective of what I think the show is about. Like to me, Midnight Mass is, is a show about how like religion is like a Rorschach test. Like people look at it and they see different things and they get different things and they bring a part of their personality to the table when they uh, engage with religion and engage with faith. And that's different for each person. And that's where Midnight Mass comes into its own. Like there are comforts and positives that religion can provide that Midnight Mass attends to. But there's also opportunism, there's division, there's righteousness, (laughs) and there is a puritanical brutality that faith is also used as an excuse for. And I hadn't seen that conversation on screen before. I mean, I mentioned um, The Mist a few minutes ago, and that's very much like that explores the opportunism, the division. But it's it, it doesn't have the, hum- the very humane kind of like glimmers of the positive side of religion as well. And I thought like the, the creature at the heart of this, this vampire, this angel, the fact that like, there is that discrepancy. The fact that like, it's obviously vampiric in like what it's doing and the sort of like how it sucks the blood of, you know, those it attacks and it spreads its contagion. That's like vampire mythology, vampire lore, but like the framing of of it as an angel and the way that the, they back that up with like actually pretty convincing sort of interpretations of the Bible where it's like, the characters talk about how like in the old testament when people saw angels they were terrified by their they cowered in fear all of that stuff backs up the idea that like there is a thin line between good and evil and the positives of uh religion and religious iconography and the negatives that it can inspire as well and yeah just like it just absolutely wiped the floor with me when i watched it like pretty much in like three four days last week 
Mike Flanagan is an incredible storyteller. And this has been, a from, from what I've read, what I understand about like its journey to the screen, it's been a long gestating project that, that, that stemmed from a very personal place. Like he was involved in the Catholic church, I think Catholic church when he was a kid. I think he was an altar boy. He obviously has like a lot of feelings regarding religion that um, have been kind of simmering for a long time. <laughs> and all come to, the, come to the floor in Midnight Mass in a way that's so measured and so patient and so effective. It's fucking, sorry, am I allowed to swear? Oh, no, totally swear. I I, I could <laughs> never censor this podcast. I, I curse like a sailor. Yeah, well, yeah, man, it just, it absolutely fucking terrified me. And I forget where I began this rambling love letter, oral love letter. <laughs> I guess my, my point is like, its depiction of religion is nuanced and smart and sophisticated in a way that you don't often see on screen sometimes what's expressed is like the missed version of it which is amazing and great in itself but it's that lacks the nuance yeah i think like what i appreciated and took away from this well like for example like sheriff hassan like that's a great character and i think the show would have been much weaker without that muslim counterpoint making a broader point about like religion in general rather than rooting this specifically as like a christian thing he's definitely the he's the moral heart of the show sheriff hassan is definitely the moral heart of the show and definitely i i think you're absolutely right that it it makes it so the show is not just talking about christianity or a specific sect of christianity but it's expanded to a larger discussion about faith in general and religion in general and you know i think the metaphor in the show of, of the vampires of the thirst is like this thirst for comfort in eternal life, the, this thirst to survive beyond what may be natural, you know, these very primal instincts to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the moral heart of the show, but he's also, he's the leading man, but you don't realize, you don't realize that, that he's the protagonist until like, till after like episode five, when uh, Riley, self combusts like the opening scene the opening scenes it like this show begins with car crash riley looking on at you know the body of this girl whose death he's responsible for and then a couple of you know i think it's either at the end of that first episode or deep into it he's in his jail cell and he's seeing that girl and he's seeing like the ghost of that girl and i I thought I was heading towards another one of those stories where, yeah, as I said at the beginning of the show, piece of his past becoming, like, taking on some sort of physical form, haunting him. Is it real? Is it not? Like, I thought that's where we were going. And we've seen that before everywhere for the last, like, decade or and And indeed in, like, Mike's work before. But it takes a completely different path. And Riley's, because you started the show from his perspective, you expect him to see it out. And the fact that he doesn't, and he doesn't. And the fact that yeah. he, the fact that he dies so early, but also has such a complete arc. He as an addict wants like the thing that he wants is control. And I love the fact that like he's made his, his death scene. It comes earlier than I expected, but like the fact that as an addict and as now someone who's like 
thirsty for the blood of you know he has this impulse in him that he can't control in in this case you know to uh you know to violently attack and like uh, <laughs> right. suck the blood of, uh, of the other. <laughs> uh, you know when he rose out to sea with um, with Aaron, the fact that he's able to control that impulse and make a decision and have the agency to like sacrifice himself that's such a complete arc and it's so so perfect for that character but you don't realize it too long afterwards because it, the shock of it is just so violent but yeah so sorry to, to go back to the uh sheriff hassan like uh he is the moral heart but flanagan sort of disguises that really nicely until deep into the series when he gets to become like the sort of western hero he he gets yeah. western he's, he's not like western west versus east western in the like he's the sheriff and he's wearing double denim kind of cowboy outfits and i think cowboy boots and he gets to be the superhero who punches the vampire at one point i think and uh yeah it's just it's just masterfully done and it's he's ambitious and experimental in a way that like with with story and story structure that he has earned the right to do just by delivering project after project after project that's awesome and has been successful. If if your average screenwriter wrote something that was structured like Midnight Mass, they might kind of have a stack of studio notes waiting for them that were like, whoa, you can't do this. <laughs> that's, that's not how this works. So yeah, it's um, uh, just, I'm just still, as I say, a couple of days later, still unpacking how it worked and 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 why it worked so effectively it's interesting you touched on a lot of the things that i uh wanted to talk about including the fact that riley he's our pov into the town but he's not really the protagonist at the end of the story like he has an arc and you know what we're talking about like concrete uh things you can learn from this show like what a great plant and payoff of his you know his dreams that he's going to watch you know the sunrise and the way that that yeah. finally pays off, but like in a way that's so tragic, but like bittersweet, you know, that he's not alone anymore. And that the woman he killed, at least the projection of her forgives him. And then he like spontaneously combusts and dies in a horrible way. Um, but, you know, that's very, uh, a very horror way of handling a very beautiful act of self-sacrifice. I mean, I think that's part of what's seductive about, so much of the cultier aspects of the show the you know the the dark side of religion is how beautiful it is and how comforting it is and and then likewise finding the beauty in the the horrible you know the hardest and darkest parts of life getting back to sort of the idea that riley is not the protagonist it's interesting that you mention sheriff hassan as the protagonist because i actually interpreted it as father paul is sort of the protagonist of the show for me, yeah. where I feel like he's, I mean, he's obviously like an antagonistic force, but I feel like Bev Keen is the real like villain of the show, right? Where she sort of embodies everything that's wrong. Well, Father Paul has the, the arc that kind of, he changes the most, I feel like. Like his arc is the one that embodies what the show is trying to say in a way. He's certainly not necessarily the one who like ultimately saves the day. And so in that way, you know, Sheriff Hassan and uh, Kate Siegel's character, who I cannot remember her name, Miss green or something I, I don't remember her first name green. there you go yeah aaron and but father paul for me is so much embodies and his arc embodies what the show is about this sort of like reckoning with faith and how dangerous it can be and how it can you know fall out of control this if driven by this very primal but uh very volatile thirst 
for things that, you know, maybe human beings uh, don't deserve or just shouldn't have the, the, this immortal life, it, this unnatural state, uh, very kind of Frankenstein in that way. It's like, don't play God, don't try to survive when you should not, because it'll have disastrous consequences. Yeah. But again, like in terms of that Mike Flanagan rule breaking, if he is the protagonist, which there's a good argument to be made that he is, he doesn't turn up till episode two. He said, I don't think he's in the pilot. Well, I think pilot, he is. Is he? he like, I, when does he talk? Maybe he is. It's, it's certainly not till like episode three that you actually realize who he is. And he's so right. unknowable in a way that like protagonists rarely are. Like you're, you're, you're more often rooted in that perspective and you understand like the thing that's like immediately trackable in most protagonists is who they are and what they want. And that is absolutely not the case. In fact, I would say, unless I missed a detail, I didn't know what, I I certainly didn't know who he was until like the end of episode three. And then it wasn't really till like the final episode that I realized what this was all for and what he wanted all along, which was the, I forget the character's name, the sort of Benjamin Button lady who's who's aging backwards. Right, right. There's something like whoever we decide on as being like the sort of leading character of this story, if there is one, there is still something ambitious and unorthodox about how they're written into this show. But to go back to that thing I was just saying about how like, about desires and character wants and tracking those. And I was watching like The Dark Knight Rises the other day. Sorry, this is a bit of a detour. Um, <laughs> and I was like, it occurred to, like, basically afterwards, I was like, I realized that I had no idea what any of the characters wanted. None of the, like, and I, and I just, I, there's not, that's not to say there aren't things to enjoy about that, that film. But certainly at the end, I was like, it, it gave me an appreciation of how at the end of the day, really stories are a bunch of people wanting things. And the effectiveness of a story for me is often in how well can I track what those people want at the end of a series, at the end of a film, how easily am I, be- am I able to articulate what it was these people wanted. And with Midnight Mass, for all its like structural experimentation and the leaps that it takes in terms of character, in terms of perspective, I can tell you immediately, like, right, well, Bev, she wants status, she wants power, and she she uh, tries to attain that through religion and through her position in the church. Um, Riley, as I mentioned, he wants forgiveness, self-forgiveness. He wants control over his addictions. Erin wants well as we move into this first she wants to have a child and then as we move into the show it's the mystery of like her wanting to find out what happened to her child there are a lot of like every single character you're pretty easily able to track and say this is the thing they wanted even joe i think the character's name is joe, yeah the, joe yeah he wants like absolution for the fact that years and years prior uh, prior he had you know shot that Lisa, I think, I think that's her name. Yeah. Um, every single character, you're able to fairly easily articulate without much thought, like, that was the thing they wanted. I think if you've got that in place, one lesson I really took away from Midnight Mass was, if you've got that in place, and if those desires, if those character wants are trackable, then you, you've got much more leeway to bend things in other places and to make kind of structural changes to to the sort of screenwriting 101 template 
Uh, no, I think that's a really great point that I hadn't thought about is you you definitely have a lot more leeway uh, with structural experimentation with uh, certain levels of ambiguity and more subversive storytelling. If you have the audience right there with the characters, understanding the characters, you know, feeling with the characters, uh, it, it, it gives you, like you said, a lot of leeway. And a lot of momentum, too, because like it's what drives the scenes like i yeah it it just keeps it moving in a way because if if every character has a concrete want then every scene they're in they're moving towards that that thing they desire and i think like that's what for for a show that in theory deals well not even in theory just fully deals with some very big themes there's a lot of like religious philosophy in there, spiritual kind of uh, long monologues about long monologues about, you know, religion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this should be a slower show. This should be something that doesn't, it doesn't like on paper, I look at the sort of episode structure and it's like, sweet, the, the, the angel slash vampire doesn't come into the third episode late. Like how, how is this thing, how do, how do I, why do I feel like this thing is moving so quickly? And I think the thing that does give it that sense of pace is not the fact that, yeah, okay, fair enough, like episode one ends with like a bunch of dead cats washing up on the beach, which is a great kind of like, ooh, that's interesting. I, I genuinely think it's like Flanagan has such a good grasp on like, these are all my characters and this is what they want at all times. And every scene they're kind of moving towards those those desires they're either trying to kind of they're either like running towards them or that thing is within their power and they're desperately trying to to grow like continue their their sort of hold on that thing i think the show is going to be great to rewatch at some point because you understand the characters once but there's so much that we learn about them throughout the series father paul being probably the biggest uh example where it's like that last couple episodes i forget whether it's in six or seven where we find out that you know he's the father of the the doctor character and you know had a relationship with god i wish i could remember all the characters names but i just can't uh too many but they're all so distinct i mean i can remember how they made me feel you know i can remember what they did that completely reframes the show right understanding why paul is doing what he's doing like i feel like you can kind of track certainly by episode three what his goals are you know throughout the show because he's like a kind of the main plot driver I feel like for a lot of the show like just foundationally because yeah. his sort of return to the town is the inciting incident for the show that yeah. his plan to make everyone vampires uh effectively <laughs> and the call is from inside the house uh that that last episode reveal like suddenly turns everything you knew about him on its head and I certainly didn't see it coming and it, but it made perfect sense in hindsight that like even this like while he was trying to he had a very well what he viewed as noble theoretically noble goal of trying to like save this town a very her- heroic goal that of course you know he went about in a very terrible way don't go trying to turn people into vampires it's not going to work out he you know is actually driven by this very like human part of him that wanted to save his little girl that wanted to save the woman he loved that wanted to have a life with them that he never could have before. And I, I, I think that's, it's really interesting that you can continue to, you know, throughout the show, even as you understand the characters, unpack more about them that give you even a greater understanding for why they're doing what they're doing that adds 
so much more nuance. You know, we've talked about how nuanced the show is. That it continues adding these layers up until the very end of the show that elevates our sort of emotional experience with it and how much we care about the characters and, and what the show is ultimately trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And on that point about rewatching it and the things that I anticipate getting from a second watch of, of this show, I've only approached this from like the lens of religion. Like that was the way I think, like, because it's such an overt part of the show. That was the lens that I kind of like in, interpreted this story as I as I watched it by design. But I think going back, I, I would love to rewatch and sort of see what comes to the fore again because like I think there is so much buried into this about the way as communities we're very and we, the last few years have shown how we kind of like very attracted like that all that all you need is this sort of like catalyst and community communities can divide quite easily and they can get caught up in us in hysteria quite easily and i i thought a lot about um when i was watching the show the first time that image of the angel at the altar in the sort of religious garb seeing something so monstrous in like dressed up in kind of religious glad rags really made me think about how like that has been a in the US and certainly in the UK that has been a political strategy over the last sort of <laughs> years. like I think about like Trump like turning up outside that church as kind of people being beaten sort of like 20 minutes down the road and the way that sort of like politicians will uh, like invoke religion as a way of kind of getting what they want. Uh, there's, there's a lot in here that I think like can be unraveled and unraveled again. And even like watching this show in the time of COVID is fascinating and will be fascinating to watch again. Obviously, Mike Flanagan uh, has been trying to make this for like a decade. So this, uh, you know, predates COVID in a way that is, uh, you know, he, he obviously didn't intend any kind of like parallels completely completely accidental either that or he is some sort of like incredible time traveling psychic which i, I believe it i think i think he might be honestly <laughs> yeah. we don't know we can't rule it out but i think like <laughs> really it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter whether it's like political like a human political grenade like trump was it doesn't matter if it's something like COVID-19, when you throw this like new element into a tight-knit community, things can fracture just so quickly. And just that, that sort of attention to this shiny new thing in the, in, in the story of Midnight Mass is like seemingly provoking all these miracles and all these different things. Just the sort of like hysteria that can ensue and the sort of like way that things can snowball so quickly it was a really fascinating story to sit in based on the last few years. Absolutely. And I th I think buried in that is, I mean, kind of the, the very plot itself is driven by people in power promising things and wrapping them up, like you said, in, with religion, with, you know, a nice little bow, making them look beautiful, but, you know, sidestepping the horrible underbelly to it. It's, you know, it's, it is that classic politician thing. It's certainly what Trump did, where, you know, you promise all of these things to people that maybe in some form or another, you're going to try to deliver, but not, uh, you know, address all the people you're going to hurt along the way doing it. Mm -hmm. And 
continuing down that sort of thematic stretch and, and getting a bit into philosophy, I think one of the ways in which that I, I hope I get to rewatch the show and, and view it from this uh, angle is in how much it's a treatise, I think, on addiction and not just in terms of alcoholism in a very concrete way. You know, people, there, there have been studies done that one of the driving factors for people's turn to alcohol and other drugs is this sort of existential despair, this existential boredom, you know, this this like feeling lost in the universe, feeling very small in the universe. And I think when we talk about addiction, one of the things that we kind of sidestep a lot of times, but that the show is very intimately aware of is the way in which faith and religion can be addicting. You know, oftentimes my my aunt uh, was an alcoholic and uh, did, you know, 12 step program, super into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think one of the things that people coming out of that program will sometimes talk about is the ways in which they trade one addiction for another. They, you know, trade alcohol for Christianity in the case of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, although they, they are theoretically open to a lot of different faiths. And the ways in which that sort of addiction and trying to seek out comfort in a universe that maybe doesn't care that much about you uh, can be destructive, not only for yourself, but for the community at large, and that it can uh, enable your worst instincts, your worst impulses to just to find a little bit of comfort. And it makes it very tragic, the horror of it. And I think that's part of why Midnight Mass is so affecting. Yeah, yeah. I I would be really interested to hear someone who has experienced with addiction to hear about like how the show intersected with their experience of it but absolutely the the way that it kind of like dissolves the line between like bad addiction you know uh, the sort of hedonism that leads to sort of riley's fall at the beginning of the show um versus the i mean bev bev is addicted to it's how she defines who she is everything about that character is wrapped up in a piousness that she grants herself because of her place, her standing in the church and that community. And that's a different form of addiction. It's just one that's like less obvious, less apparent, less physical perhaps, but like, right. yeah. I, I thought that the parallels that it draws were so sophisticated and yeah, just, you know, sometimes you watch something so sophisticated and you understand pretty immediately that, this is not something I can kind of tie a neat little bow on in terms of my understanding of it. I do need to go back. And this will be something that like the way that The Shining, another kind of you know story that sits close to Mike Flanagan's heart for obvious reasons, the way that The Shining is still something that every time I watch it, I pull from it something different. Do I think I could go back to it on a very regular basis? <laughs> my blood pressure, my blood pressure <laughs> could not handle it. But um I'm excited to give it a bit of room and then when the time is right return to it and yeah see see how this story like operates like when I'm not looking for the mystery like when I'm not when I'm not looking for the answers to the questions that that it's plot are driving at and and to see kind of like just thematically like in a different headspace like a little bit further down the line what what does this show mean to me then? A hundred percent. Going off of the, the raising of your blood pressure, of your heart rate, let's talk about that the, the big scene in, in episode six that I think is sort of their, their red wedding moment. 
you know, certainly the most like viscerally impactful scene in the show. It's just so fucked yeah. up. It's uh, and I and I love the way in which it, like that episode builds really slowly to it. That like a lot of the episode up until that point is just you know characters like scrambling around and it's a lot of just like small character beats but like with this gradual underpinning like oh we're gonna have our easter mass our midnight mass (laughs) winks of the audience where you know it's just the underlying like planting the bomb under the table something i've been talking about um, on this podcast a lot is hitchcock's idea of suspense and that midnight mass is quite literally the bomb under the table you're like okay what's going to happen at this thing, you know, like the building up, everyone's going, everyone gets dragged into it. Even Sheriff Hassan is like, yeah. I, I gotta go. He, you know, he starts noticing like something's, something's off going on in the town. Like what's Bev Keen doing? Something's not right here until we finally get to that scene, which is so cathartic in a fucked up way where it's like, everything has been building this moment. And finally the bomb goes off and people just start dropping like flies. <laughs> Yeah, you know what really impresses me about that episode and and that scene? Mike Flanagan exercises so much patience at script level to make that the eruption that it is. So Sheriff Hassan is, I'm inferring a lot of this from the backstory that he gives either in earlier in that episode or the episode before, I think it's the episode before, where he he explains... um, the sort of perception of him after 9-11 and how it affected his career. I feel like that character is subject to so many microaggressions and often just like in Bev's case, aggressions. This <laughs> is subject to so much like uh, so many kind of little racist sort of swipes at him. And because of his background, because of what's explained in the episode, he's as a character, He's very careful. He's very aware that as like a sort of six foot four, uh, I don't know how tall he is, but the actor, <laughs> he could intimidate people just by their insecurities and his physicality. And as a result, he is very careful, even in the face of like so many moments that would cause any of us to erupt. Like, for example, that scene in the schoolroom where Bev is being so dismissive of him because he doesn't want the he doesn't want the Bible handed out to the kids in the school. He even in that instance is just so careful not to allow himself to show any signs of aggression, of upset, anything like that. And that's completely rooted in character and where he's come from. And all the way through the show, he's his his responses to those situations are measured. They're kind of like a four out of 10 in terms of like anger, upset, passion. Right. And the fact that like he doesn't, the script doesn't allow him that moment of eruption or that moment of visible breaking makes that scream when he's on the floor seeing his son drink from the, um, yeah, take communion just makes it so guttural because it's been six episodes coming. It has been six episodes getting to that point. And TV writing, which is something I don't have, an ex- I don't have much experience of beyond like a couple of pilots, like moments like that make me realize that great TV is, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And the restraint that Flanagan shows with how things get to that moment and what makes it so effective, it's just masterful. It is, it is on, it honestly feels like a masterclass. Like if 
if he had, if we had already seen him scream, if we had already seen him upset, it wouldn't have hit on the same level that that moment does, where he finally like howls this scream that is just so raw. That's just brilliant writing, and it's absolutely subtle, and it's 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 earned. I think is like the word that best sums it up. It's so it, it's earned. Yeah, I I think it's a marathon, not a sprint is such a a great way of putting it that all all the little pieces that he slides into place in those early episodes and through the different characters interactions, you know, the fact that the boat, the ferry only leaves like certain times of the day, like only a few times and like building up, you know, to all of these moments so that suddenly he can like flip the chessboard and everything like shits hit the fan. And that's how, you know, and all of it's earned. Uh, that, you know, yeah. there are no boats anymore. Hassan's losing it. Like everything is just coming together in this sort of emotional climax that is so satisfying. Yeah, man. I think there will be weeks for me of like unpacking why things hit me the way they did. Um, I mean, in terms of like my own kind of relationship with religion, I am, my, my, my family on my mum's side, Irish, I've had like an adjacency, I suppose, to the way that kind of like religion can divide and how it can bring together as well. So I think like there's a degree to which like I, I was probably always going to be sensitive to a show like this and its themes, but how it gets there is just so incredible. And I don't think like it's for me anyways, and my ability to read, read film and, and read a screenplay. I don't think like I'm able to comprehend in one sitting how I feel about things and why it works, why it is so effective. All I can say for now, while I'm still in that kind of like haze, having only really just finished it, I finished it a couple of, like a couple of nights ago. All I can say is just like I know it will stick with me. I know it's going to be uh, a long time in which like I I know there is going to be a long relationship that I have with this series, which I, I haven't had. I've never gone back to Hill House. I've never I've gone back to Doctor Sleep a few times, just just as an exercise in. I'm amazed that he managed to pull that off and uh, <laughs> live as something so satisfying when I can't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. How a, a sequel to The Shining so many years on, that just seems like a recipe for disaster to me. So I have had the impulse to go back to that and, and rewatch that a few times to kind of work out how that works. But um, yeah, man, Midnight Mass is on a whole nother level. Like I'm so excited and yet petrified to go back and, and kind of entangle myself in in that island and, and its inhabitants all over again but yeah I it's, think I think he needs to give it give it a bit of room it's definitely I think the densest thing that he he's ever made and obviously he he talks about how personal it was to him it's the most personal you know story he's told so far the, the longest gestating and Hill House will always have a very special place in my heart it's for me like peak horror but Midnight Mass definitely you can feel that this is like the passion project for Mike Flanagan and that it, you know, like, like you said, it, it, with you, it, it touched me on a very personal level that I, I do identify as an atheist now, but I grew up with religion. All my, my entire family is very religious and they have, I think, a very healthy relationship with religion. So I've seen, you know, the ups and downs of uh, what religion can do for people and how it can provide hope, but also create despair. And that sort of yeah it it touches on a very personal thing for I think everyone and I think that's part of why the show has been so impactful is its themes although addressed in a very specific personal way are universal they're probably so universally affecting 
because they're so personal, because they come from a very specific place that it feels true. And, you know, if art and writing is kind of this quest for truth in a way that Mike Flanagan has touched on something and his whole writing staff has touched on something very true with Midnight Mass. I think that's a really beautiful articulation of it. And it's, it's the reason why it doesn't really matter what your relationship with religion is. There's something to connect with and grapple with in this show. I think it will be a slow burn. I'm really curious to know sort of like, because obviously it's come out at a time where there's another TV phenomenon that has kind of slightly taken its shine at a point where I think in, in normal, normal, quote unquote, normal years, um, <laughs> it would have had, uh, you know, lots of space for, and lots of uh, a pretty much kind of like attention on it that wouldn't have been uh, being pulled away in different directions. This, this year, obviously, it's had Squid Game, which has come out of nowhere. I know, yeah. Huge success, and it's come out at the same time. And I feel like a lot, most people I like, uh, you know, have texted and been like, man, have you watched Midnight Mass? I need to talk about Midnight Mass with you. They've been like, yeah, but I've just, I'm going to get to it. I've just got to finish Squid Game. And <laughs> it's vice versa. Like, you know, I did Midnight Mass first, and now I'm watching Squid Game, and that's great as well. So, um, yeah, it's... I think it, the way the, the show is a slow burn and just the way that as a screenwriter, Mike Flanagan operates with a lot of patience, I think this will take on a pretty similar, especially as we head towards Halloween. I think more and more audiences will commit to it and discover it. And yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing what the half-life of the show is like. I God, I hope it has a long one. I, I have to imagine it will. It's just, uh, what a powerful show. And you know, everyone who I've, I feel like I've seen who has seen it has really enjoyed it. And so, you know, hopefully it, it continues to pick up steam with audiences around the world. Yeah, it certainly deserves it. All right. Well, I think we're coming up on like an hour. Um, so thank you so much, Al, for being on the show. Uh, any last thoughts about Midnight Mass? Uh, my last thought is that I realized that um, it's quite fitting that um, my love for this show is so deep that you've asked you've like mentioned something or asked a question and then i have gone on at the length of one of the monologues you know how like in the show it's like hey how are you and then a character will be like how am i no one's asked me that in a long time in jail they didn't ask me that and then 15 minutes later riley stops talking which i (laughs) i feel like i've done like the sort of podcast equivalent of that but i regret nothing absolutely you shouldn't yeah lots of you touched on a lot of what just makes this show so powerful and so effective. A lot of what, you know, I think people can learn from the show. It's wow. I got, I'm a sucker for monologues. I have to admit, I'm like, I don't know if it's like the Shakespearean like nerd in me or what, but I love when a character like, you're like, Oh yep. Here comes the soliloquy. Like I'm, I'm on board with it. I loved daredevil on Netflix was another show where like characters would just like, left and right start monologuing and i always was a sucker for it i'm like i just talk to me charlie cox just talk to me (laughs) man i feel the same i feel like monologues are kind of like guitar solos they're theoretically quite sort of self-indulgent and look at me and kind of pull you out of can pull you out of the moment in terms of immersion in a plot unless they're really really fucking good <laughs> and that in, mm-hmm. in, and if that's the case you just sort of stand back and admire the craft these like the monologues and in particular the monologue on the sofa where riley is describing what he thinks happens when you die 
oh my god just like the level of writing like the beauty of writing it, it just kind of he can he gets away with it Mike Flanagan can make a seven-part series where it's just one person's monologue for all I care. Like <laughs> that level of craft comes to uh, yeah these these soliloquies. I think um, yeah he can do whatever he wants. Absolutely. Well, uh, where can people find you, Al? So people can find me on Twitter. Uh, Al underscore Horner. I forgot my handle there for a second. Al underscore ha- uh, Al underscore Horner. Um, I'm also on Instagram Uh, but if you really want to hear more rambly thoughts about screenwriting you can listen to my podcast which is called Script Apart and that's just at Script Apart or search us wherever you get podcasts you should absolutely check it out hopefully if you're listening to the show you're already listening to it because I mean it's just a phenomenal podcast with really really great interviews with some of the best screenwriters working today thanks so much for saying that of course had an absolute blast as i say most of my friends are still watching squid game so uh it's been great to be able to chat to someone about midnight mass i i'm in the exact same boat i that's why i jumped at it is like i normally my girlfriend is the one who i like will talk about horror with but even she hasn't gotten to midnight mass yet everyone's on squid game so uh this was this was great fun yeah man. Well, thanks thanks again so much for having me of course and thank you folks for listening pardon my oklahoman accent coming in there Follow all our socials linked below. Consider donating to the Patreon or even just leave a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Look forward to next week's episode featuring a very special guest and a good friend of mine who works for Imagine Entertainment. Till then, I'm Carl Albert, and this has been PopCraft.